Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 12, 2021, and this is show number 866. Well, I asked last time if people could help do some listener reviews for the podcast so that we'll have full-length, interesting shows for the Christmas and New Year's weekends. So far, Mike, Bodie, and Sandy have all come through with contributions. Now, Frank says that some software ate half of his recording. I guess he used that as his, his excuse because he doesn't have a dog to blame it on, but he does expect to get one into me soon. Now, that's a great start, and I'm much less panicked than I was a week ago when I realized uh, that both weekends were uh, holiday weekends, but I sure could use even more recordings. I'd like to be able to relax a little bit over the holidays, and you know we won't do reruns around here other than one specific holiday tradition. So if you can help out, I would sure appreciate it. Now, if you don't have a big girl mic, you can even use the microphone on your headphones or even your mobile phone's microphone if you think it sounds good enough. I know that the iPhone's microphone is actually pretty darn good. I can't speak for other uh, phones though, but uh, bring in a recording if you could. Thank you so much to those who have already done the recordings and thanks in advance to those of you who will give it a try yourself, even though you hate the sound of your own voice on a recording. And here's a little uh, spoiler for everybody. Everybody hates the sound of their own voice on recordings. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is another installment of Programming by Stealth with Bart Bouchatz. In our last installment, Bart explained why good documentation matters to ourselves and to other developers who might want to use our code. And he also explained that using an automatic document generator like JSDoc could help make it easier for us to write good documentation and to keep it up to date more easily. In this week's installment, he starts to show us how to actually write JSDoc comments in line with our code. He explains the different elements of JSDoc comments and demonstrates how his own doc comments evolve as he figures out what he's trying to do. I really enjoyed this installment, and his example he used for this is just perfect for us nerds. But I'm telling you about this episode, and all of this is a tease. You see, we recorded the episode on Saturday, but the show notes are not yet finished, so we won't be publishing that episode until Monday. When we do publish, I'll update the blog post for this episode of the NoSillaCast. So if you go to the NoSillaCast blog post, you'll be able to find the link. Um, And of course, there'll be the actual publishing of it on my website as its own blog post. But updates to the podcast that you're listening to probably won't be there when you're listening to this because it comes out so quickly that it won't ever get updated. I mean, if you wanted to delete your subscription and resubscribe, you could do that, but you could just go to podfeet.com and follow it. That would be easier. Now, if you follow me on Twitter at PodFeet, you'll always know when Chit Chat Across the Pond in all of its forms are published. For as long as I can remember, I have used a giant backpack to carry my laptop when I leave my home. I buy them with built-in padded pockets to keep my precious safe from the hazards of travel. Since my very first PowerBook G4, my laptops have also been 15 inches or larger. Steve, on the other hand, has always carried his 13-inch MacBook Airs in a very simple black neoprene sleeve from the company InCase. He'll still put it in a backpack, but he really likes the protection of the sleeve. Since my new 14-inch MacBook Pro is literally 25% smaller in volume than my previous 16-inch MacBook Pro, I'm finding more opportunities to carry it along when I don't need the backpack at all. Since no short trip would ever require a charge of this amazing machine, it seems the sleeve life might be for me. Now here's the weird thing. InCase has yet to come out with a sleeve for the 14-inch MacBook Pro. I know this size is the new hotness, but I really thought by now they'd have one available. I've also gone to the Apple Store to peruse the offerings there, and there's not a single case for the 14-inch form factor. I did a search on the internets for 14-inch MacBook sleeves, and I didn't really see a lot of options. That's when I realized maybe my search term was too narrow, so I just started searching for 14-inch laptop sleeves rather than just Apple laptops. I eventually found and purchased the Lacto laptop sleeve for 14-inch MacBook Pro on Amazon for a grand sum of $15. Spoiler, I think it's just lovely. The Lacto has the main compartment for the laptop, which is nicely lined with what they call a soft fluff interior, but it also has a thin pocket on the outside that easily fits an iPad mini. This pocket doesn't have much padding, so I'd probably keep the iPad facing in if I put it in there. The same pocket could easily hold a charger and a cable. 
I use a gallium nitride charger for my laptop when I'm away from home, and it being so much slimmer than normal charger makes it a perfect fit for the front pocket of the lacto sleeve. Now, this is kind of hard to explain, but the same piece of material that forms the pocket I described on the outside also has a hidden pocket perpendicular to it that could easily hold a 10 or 11 inch iPad. As if that weren't enough, on the flip side, there's a slotted area that would be perfect to slip in, a, say, a notebook or a folder, something that didn't require being zipped in for safety. The lacto sleeve comes in six colors. I chose the gray, which is a mottled, woven look that's very classy. It also comes in black, navy blue, mint green, peach, and pink. Now, as much as I love wild colors, the pink and mint green are a little bit much for even me, but the peach and navy blue are both lovely as well. According to the information on the Amazon page, the sleeve is also water repellent, which is nice. The zippers feel sturdy and well-made and are easy to open and close. Now, as far as protection is concerned, they show a breakdown of the polyester fabric outside, high expansion foam, a shockproof inner layer, and the soft fluff interior. Now, I don't think I'd do a drop test with my laptop in the lacto sleeve to test it, but it seems about as protected as you can expect from a laptop sleeve. Now, the 14-inch MacBook Pro fits quite nicely in the lacto sleeve, but it could fit a laptop maybe a half an inch wider. It's not enough extra room that it feels like my laptop is sliding all over the place, but I wouldn't call it a snug fit in that dimension. Even though the lacto, the lacto laptop sleeve has two pockets and a slot on the back, it's not at all bulky. It feels sleek, and like I said, it looks very classy and gray, and I'm really looking forward to taking my precious out to a dinner party in it. I can't believe the Lacto is only $15 on Amazon because it really is lovely and I'm very, very happy with this purchase. I can't believe the Lacto is only $15 on Amazon because it really is lovely and I'm very, very happy with this purchase. I really wish I could carry my iPhones without cases because they're so darn pretty and sleek, but every time I give that a try, I invariably drop them within a day or so of removing the case. I test every new iPhone without its case, but only inside my carpeted home. As soon as it slips out of my hand or slides off the arm of a couch, on the case has to go. Now, I used to buy Apple silicone cases, but in 2019, I banned them from my life after the third one I paid $50 for fell apart in less than a year, and Apple refused to honor their supposed one-year warranty. When I spoke of my discontent with Apple iPhone cases, Kaylee turned me on to Case Coo's brand of inexpensive iPhone cases. When I got my iPhone 13 Pro this year, I bought their $18 clear case. I've been really happy with it because it shows off my pretty new device while protecting the same device. Not only does it give the phone back protection, but it's also got little extra cushions on the corners and of course a nice ridge around the camera plateau to protect the lenses. It's just sticky enough to ensure a firm grip at all times, but not too sticky. And at $18, I could buy them in all different colors to suit my mood. I don't, because I really like the clear case, but I could. A representative from a company called Mujo out of the Netherlands asked me if I'd like to give one of their fancy leather cases a try. I haven't actually ever used a leather case before, so I thought it sounded like fun to give it a try. I took a look at the options Mujo sells, and I chose the premium leather cover in Monaco Blue that'll run you $45 USD. The first thing I have to say is it is gorgeous. The Monaco Blue is a dark navy color, and it looks very luxurious. Better yet, the leather case feels very luxurious, just like you would hope a nice leather case would feel. Now, I wanted to figure out a way to describe how much protection you would get with the Mujo leather case, so as a way of comparison, we set it beside Steve's iPhone 13 Pro in the Apple silicone case. We laid a ruler across the two devices, and there was no wobble in it in any dimension, telling us that the dimensions of the two devices were virtually identical. That tells you that the Mujo leather case is a minimalistic case. It's not bulky and thick, which, you know, would give greater protection, but it gives you the minimum thickness to provide you with some protection. Now, I can't testify that the Mujo leather case will provide protection from any kind of drop test, but I can tell you that with this leather case on, I flipped my phone out of my own hand and it landed on concrete and it had zero damage. I think it hit a bit of a corner and then landed face down. My heart was in my throat until I flipped it over, but the Mujo leather case saved the day. Now, I'm not the type of person who worries about whether the ports on a laptop are center aligned versus top aligned or worse yet, random aligned, 
But for the sake of those who are, I searched the Mujo case for imperfections in design, and I did find one thing that might bother those who look for tiny, tiny details. On the bottom of the iPhone 13 Pro, there are two sets of holes. The four-hole set is the speaker, and the three-hole set is for the microphone. The rounded slots in the Mujo case are slightly farther from the face of the phone than the corresponding holes in the phone. This is only noticeable because on the three-hole slot, one of the holes is right next to the end of the slot in the case. Now, I, the, the microphone port is not occluded in any way by the case, so the mic isn't muffled or impeded in any way. Now, I measured how offset this is, because if you're that person, you probably want me to. The entire slot is only three millimeters tall, and I would say it could move up about a half a millimeter to be aligned perfectly. It's that tiny of a difference, so normal humans would never notice it, but I do want to serve our broader audience, no matter how detailed they might be. More in the usability category, I find no difficulty using the volume up-down buttons, and we tested flipping the mute switch with the Mujo case and the official Apple silicone case, and there was no difference in the fingernail length required to execute the switch flipping. Mujo also sells a wallet case for $49.90 USD. Both styles of cases come in Monaco blue, as well as tan for the true leather look, and black. I want to mention one final thing, which actually gives me a little bit of pause about Mujo. You know how just about every website in the universe now has an option to change your privacy preferences? You can either just click accept and get moving, or you can edit your preferences to turn off tracking cookies. Mujo's website has that preference setting, but when you open it, every single option says required, and you can't turn any of them off. By agreeing, you're saying that you read the privacy policy, which isn't offered to you to actually read at that point, um, necessary cookies to allow the website to function, and, you know, that makes sense. Then it says tracking cookies, and those are also required. But let me quote it exactly, because I'm not sure if we should worry or not. It says, these cookies allow us to count visits and traffic sources so we can measure and improve the performance of our site. They help us to know which pages are the most and least popular and see how visitors move around the site. All information these cookies collected is aggregated and therefore anonymous. Now, if I squint and tilt my head, I can kind of convince myself that this only means incoming cookies so someone else has tracked me and that they only count how they see you move around their own site, and that is completely fair. That's not cross-site tracking. But it did give me pause. I'll let you do your own squinting and head tilting so you can decide how that part affects you. Overall, I'm very pleased with the Mujo leather case, which I can measure by the fact that I haven't gone back to my clear plastic case coup case yet. Not saying I won't, but for now, I love the classy look and feel of the Mujo leather case, and since it saved my iPhone on one drop test, I'm feeling rather fond of it. You can find all of Mujo's iPhone cases, along with their laptop sleeves, at mujo.com, and that's spelled M-U-J-J-O.com. I mentioned during my review of the Lacto laptop sleeve for 14-inch MacBook Pro that Steve prefers the very simple design of the sleeves from InCase. He had one for his MacBook Air originally, and more recently for his 13-inch MacBook Pro that has now been traded down. He's been waiting for them to come out with one for the 14-inch MacBook Pro that he just got, but I thought maybe I could find him one that's just as good, but actually available now. Since I'd had success spending $15 on a, uh, a case for my MacBook Pro, I thought I could find one for him. But he likes it very, very simple. So I bought him the Amazon Basics 14-inch laptop sleeve in black for the grand sum of $11. It is, as Bart would say, exactly what it says on the tin. It's a very simple neoprene black sleeve with a zipper around it. You should absolutely not buy this sleeve for the 14-inch MacBook Pro. The main problem is this sleeve is way too big. Now, I know we didn't buy it for the MacBook Pro. It just said 14-inch. But the other one that I bought from Lacto also just said 14-inch. But this one by Amazon Basics is nearly a full inch too wide and three-quarters of an inch too deep. The 14-inch MacBook Pro positively sloshes around in this case. Now, I, like I said, I know 14 inches does not define a laptop's length and width, but the diagonal interior dimension of this sleeve is a full 16 inches. I think you'd have to go back to the early 1990s to find a laptop with a bezel big enough to take 14 inches up to 16 inches. 
Well, the good news is that when I told Amazon that I wanted to return it, the system offered me a no-return refund. Basically, it said, let's just give you your money back, but keep the sleeve or discard it. We don't care. Now I checked just in case to see if my 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro would fit in it, but it's just barely a bit too snug for that. I guess this, this sleeve will be relegated to the giant pile of no longer needed tech that all geeks keep in their closets. Even though this sleeve didn't meet our needs, I do really appreciate the hassle-free customer service from Amazon. When I showed this case that I, I, I gave it to Steve early for Christmas and I said, here, here's a present, you're going to hate it. So anyway, when I showed it to him, he while well, he thought it was nice that I had made an effort, he showed me the in-case sleeve, and the one he had is called the Icon, and he explained why he's so fond of that particular sleeve. The sleeve doesn't have a zipper, but rather has a magnetic closure at one end. The interior of the sleeve has a rubber bumper that is exactly fit to the dimensions of his previous laptop. This means the sleeve is not only very sleek, it gives maximum protection to the corners and edges of his laptop when it's in the sleeve. Now, the NK site does allow you to search by 14 and 16 inch MacBook Pro, which would make you think that they had sleeves for them, but all of the hits that I got on that were for universal sleeves with zippers. No internal bumper, no magnetic closure. These are sure to be a sloppy fit with less protection than the icon sleeve Steve likes so much. I sent a press request to InCase to find out if they're planning on making an icon sleeve for the 2021 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros. So hopefully they'll get back to me on how long Steve will have to wait for the one that he wants. For now, he's squishing his 14-inch into the 13-inch sleeve from InCase, which is definitely not ideal. Well, it's that time of the week again. It is time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. Uh, how awful is the news today, Bart? Um, normal. <laughs> <laughs> so, medium awful? Yeah, mix, mixed bag as usual. Um, some good news stories, some interesting stories. Nothing too... Uh, I don't know, sometimes they're complicated and they're hard to write down, but it just sort of flowed today, so... Okay. So not too complicated, but interesting stuff. Sounds good. Yeah. So lots of follow-ups on stuff we've been tracking for a while. Um, then the Nocilla Castaways and quite a well, a lot of people noticed. Um, so we talked last time that Apple promised they would tell people if they discovered they had been attacked by a state-level actor. So if Apple knew you had been attacked by something like NSO Group, Apple said they would inform you. Well, we now know that Apple informed the U.S. State Department of at least nine U.S. State Department iPhones used by American government officials working in Africa, specifically in or around Uganda. And the suspicion is that the customer of the NSO group who was doing the abuse of the software was the Ugandan government, although they're not confirming that. NSO group are not confirming that. And the State Department are not confirming that. So... How do how do we know that they informed the State Department if nobody's telling us that they did? No, no, no. I'm saying that we no one is confirming it, it is the Ugandan government. Is what I'm saying. Oh, oh, oh! I got you. I got you. okay. So, so someone. I guess used... I'm not surprised, but for some reason, this one gives me more the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, well, I mean, the NSO group went out of the way to say that they weren't being used on American phones because anything with a plus one code was being dropped by the software. But American government officials use local phones. When they're, so oh. they had Ugandan cell phones, so they're obviously not okay. plus one. So, you know, silly, yeah. Um, in a related story, there is um, email scams doing the rounds, leveraging all of the press around NSO Group. So if you get an email from someone <laughs> pretending to be the NSO Group, no, they're not. Oh, um, yeah, there's always, like, whatever makes the news, someone tries to turn it into some way of tricking people. So just, you know, be aware. Mm. Uh, we talked late last year about a hack of Ubiquity who make high-quality, low-price uh, routers slash routers that a lot of people in our community are very fond of. Um, they're, yeah, they're kind of a nerd level, uh, yeah. a little nerdier, but uh, supposed to be pretty cool. They basically have high-end enterprise features at a home user price point, which is the mm. kind of combination that makes nerdy people very happy. Uh, and they had uh, a bit of an old data breach, and there was uh, there was a guy who appeared to be a whistleblower, 
Uh, well, thanks to some uh, criminal charges being filed, it now would appear that's not what happened. What actually happened was that the quote-unquote whistleblower was in fact an inside attacker who actually did the attack he reported on and was basically both sides of the extortion. Oh, jeez. So charming. Individual. All the best people. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- that's wonderful. So I, I just had this vision of, you know, slides around the world now having a practical real-world example of what an insider threat is. Yeah, yeah, this is be a perfect example of that. So do, in a way, this makes you feel a little bit better that maybe they didn't have sloppy security practices. Yeah. That was the root cause. The root cause was evil from within. Yeah, which is still something you have to defend against as a corporation, right? So yeah. It, yeah. it, it, it it's actually it's one of the most most cha- like there are lots of challenges in modern IT security because the old model of you have a firewall there is evil outside and good inside and you have a firewall <laughs> between the two that model has been completely shattered by bring your own device anyway but that model mm-hmm. was never compatible with the concept of an insider threat um and i don't think as an industry we've quite figured out how to run the world in a universe where the bad guys are everywhere there's no concept of inside and outside yeah yeah well you know a, a sysadmin could be a a bad person yeah. right she could go in and just change a bunch of stuff and break a bunch of stuff that's a trust you've got to have right which is why a lot of the modern stuff is full of auditing um so microsoft mm. is moving towards a model where even your admins don't have permanent admin rights. Your admins use multi-factor authentication to temporarily gain privileges. So you oh, give wow. people the right to get the right to do admin stuff. And then you have very strong auditing on every time your admins elevate themselves to their admin superpowers. Okay, so if somebody did something, you would know who did it. Too. You'd know who did it, or when it was done, and what they did. Oh, that's interesting. Which makes it much huh. easier to do those really horrible emails where you have to tell customers something terrible happened. Because you don't have to tell all of your customers something terrible might have happened. You can tell the specific customers something terrible did happen. <laughs> it's much better, though, because if and it's only 500 fired. people out of your million customers, you can only, you know, you yeah. don't have to tell a million people. You, know, you could just tell the 500. So, it, different. <laughs> But yeah, and that is the insider threat is a big part of that. So instead of having permanent admins who can who have superpowers, you have audited people who temporarily gain admin powers. So it's a different world. Yeah, yeah interesting. Early this year, around right about March, as uh, Ireland's third wave of the pandemic was actually was slightly starting to wane because Ireland's third wave was at its absolute worst at the end of January. But nonetheless, it was still fairly bad times here. Um the Irish Health Service Executive, or the HSE, which is our equivalent of the NHS in the UK, uh, got hit by the Conti ransomware. Um, there were some other high-profile victims, American hospitals and things, but uh, the entire Irish healthcare system f- being taken down was pretty big news around the world, in fact. It, it made uh, Daily Tech News today, and it, it wasn't just an Irish story. It was a big story. And the Health Service Executive were very keen to, to be public about their investigations and so forth. So they brought in PricewaterhouseCooper to do an audit of what happened and issue a report. And I'm going to take a sort of a personal point of privilege here since this very much affects me. Um, I decided to quote in the show notes the uh, important bit of the report. So, well, secondly, the important, it's it's reporting on the important bit of the report. So it's RTE's version of the the report. Anyway, PwC said the HSE is operating on a frail IT estate that has been lacking investment over many years to remain a secure infra- to maintain a secure infrastructure and does not have the required cybersecurity to protect the operation of the health services. It also said it is lacking the expertise and resources to detect, prevent, or respond to a cyber attack of this scale. It recommended the creation of two new key roles, a Chief Technology and Transformation Officer and a Chief Information Security Officer, along with 24-7 monitoring. They they don't have a Chief Information... They don't have a CISO? Yeah, because funding of IT in the Irish public sector is pathetic. So a lot of people are saying, oh, the HSE were terrible. And I read the report and I go, no, you have a public body not given the resources to protect itself. And it turns out it was unable to protect itself. Why is this a surprise to anyone? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 
you know. So do, do you think this will help to get them the funding that they need? I believe it will. It was quite the wake-up call when our hospitals okay. became incapable of communicating with each other and went back to being little islands with clipboard and paper. It's really sad that it's so hard for companies or, or you know, anybody funded under any circumstances to see that a threat like this is of enormous amplitude if uncorrected, even if it's unlikely to happen. Yeah, it's low probability, high impact events. Yeah. And they are, it's difficult to get the money to properly protect against a low probability, high impact event. Very difficult. Human nature. That'll never happen to us. Right up until the point where it does. (laughs) Oopsie daisies. Um, This is a real blast from the past. So Apple have been trying to protect privacy for a very long time. And way back in 2011 and 2012, they, ha- they began to change Safari's cookie behavior to protect users' privacy. And at the time, Google were caught with their fingers in the cookie jar, proactively using a bug they had found to secretly work around the protections and track people anyway. And there were a couple of US lawsuits that resulted in a slap on the wrist. And then there was a very big UK lawsuit that has, believe it or not, been dragging on for a decade. It has been tracking on since around about 2011, 2012 era. I am sorry to say it is dead. It died on a technicality. No one is denying that Google did what they did, but it has been decided that under the UK law, you can't sue for it unless you can prove you specifically were hurt financially. Oh, I've, I've heard of that kind of problem before in other kinds of suits. You know, yeah. like if you don't have standing, is a mm. phrase I hear pretty often. Yeah, so th- to be honest, if this were to happen today, it would be a GDPR case. Yeah. And Oh, but it was pre-GDPR. Yeah, 2011. Like this, <laughs> this yeah. is so long ago. So yeah, unfortunately, that case is now dead. So sorry well, about that. Well, it was that. worth it to get you to hear, to hear you uh, make the play on words that they were caught with their hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> I hadn't even realized I'd done that, but yes. <laughs> that's exactly what they were caught. They were third-party cookies. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Must remember that. Accidentally brilliant, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a story of my life. Anyway, uh, some developments in the world of social media. The Meta Group, as I'm calling them, or um, Facebook. Um, the UK well, the parent company of Facebook. Yeah. The UK Competition and Markets Authority have ordered that Meta, nay Facebook, sell Giphy. Facebook hmm. are trying to figure out how they can appeal the decision. So they clear. did buy. They did buy Giphy. They did buy Giphy, but they, whatever way the they they seem to have asked for permission rather than sorry, forgiveness rather than permission from the UK Competition and Markets Authority, and so when mm. they were asked to retroactively okay the merger, they went nope, not okay. Huh. So no one's quite sure how Facebook are going to respond, and Facebook basically went, we're looking at our options. So stay tuned. I think. It's kind of a bit of an L slap in the face there, so we see what happens. Uh, and then we switch to the, uh, the to the good news column here. So uh, Facebook are going to force more of their at-risk accounts to use 2FA. So if you're a public figure or someone who is at real risk of having your account taken over, Facebook are going to force 2FA on those kind of people, which should make... How do they know who is at risk? Uh, well, the, the program started with people like politicians and stuff, and it's now expanded mm-hmm. to include newsrooms and stuff like that. So hmm. there I mean, is there Brian is a program. Williams. There is a program, and it's a mix of Facebook putting people into it and people volunteering to be put into it. But the point is, if you're in the once you're in the group, you will now have two FA force than you. And okay. Google have a similar policy. Actually, Google have a higher level of protection that some people can avail of. I think. Um, I think it was Leo Laporte famously opted into it uh, to see what it was like. And of course, once you opt in, there's no, you can check it anytime you want, but you can never leave. So <laughs> he ended up being a very early adopter of 2FA on Facebook. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, look, it's a good thing to do, given how important Facebook is. Yeah. Instagram have unveiled uh, time limit controls for teens. So basically, parental controls have been expanded to allow parents to place limits on their kids' use of Instagram. Which is okay. I, so the parents put the time limit yeah, controls exactly. So it's giving parents the tools to parent, as opposed to 
the company does, being big daddy, whatever you want to call it. I wonder how a parent can add a time limit to an app like that. I presume it's to the account rather than to the app. Right, but how would the parent... I, I'm assuming I, the kid has correctly signed up as being a kid and has not lied. Well, by a teenager, let's say they're 15. So they're not under 13, they're 15, so they're legitimately in there. They get the app, they create an account. There isn't like a parent login option that I know of. There must be. Yeah. Hmm. There must be there must be a linkage mechanism there. Um and remember, yeah. thirteen is just a COPA thing. That's that's an arbitrary thing in terms of um, certain extra rules. But there's no reason that, like Apple, do up to eighteen for a bunch of their parental controls. I know they also change things mm-hmm. at thirteen because of COPA, but it's not that thirteen and up is an adult necessarily. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, oh, I accidentally put these in the wrong order. I had meant to put the Facebook Rohingya story before the good news Instagram story. Um. The Rohingya, who are a persecuted group in Myanmar, um, they have found a legal mechanism to sue Facebook, both in the UK and the US, for $150 billion over the hate speech that basically resulted in them being burned out of their villages, murdered, killed, and generally literally driven out of the country. I mean, the the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi was given a Nobel Peace Prize and that she presided over a genocide is disgraceful. The fact that she's now under house arrest because the army have taken over again doesn't absolve her from what happened in her country before that. I'm just really happy to see the Rohingya at least have a mechanism to to make Facebook face up to their responsibility. Yeah, so they have found a way to sue them. They have not won the lawsuit. No, but it, believe it or not, for someone who is not an American citizen to find a way to sue Facebook is a victory. Yeah, it's you know it's a, it's a first victory you need to go to the bigger victory, um, and it's certainly getting a lot of attention paid on Facebook's role here, and that is only a good thing. Right, right, I agree. Um, another thing that really caught my eye was some research jointly done by uh, KU Leuven, which is a Belgian university, um, and the New York University NYU. And they analyzed. Uh, so Facebook have different rules for ads that their algorithm determines are political. And so the question was, well, how good are these algorithms? Are these algorithms actually accurate? On figuring out whether it's a a political ad or not? Correct. So I'm just going to quote the headline of the study because it's just easier than paraphrasing it. So this is actually from KU Leuven's website. Um, Between July 2020 and February 2021, the KU Leuven and NYU co-authors examined 33.8 million Facebook ads. The subset that was of particular interest consisted of 189,000 ads that either Facebook or the researchers deemed political. So this Hmm. is important. So this is the superset of the ones the researchers consider political and Facebook consider political. So of that superset, what was Facebook's, um, how did the algorithm do compared to the humans? So, the researchers found that in this category, Facebook had missed about 117,000 political ads, 62%, uh, that ran but should have been taken down in, in line with its own political ad policy. Conversely, Facebook had flagged approximately 40,000 non-political ads as political, which is 21%. Facebook was, in other words, found wrong on 83% of these 189,000 ads. I, I have a little trouble with the the math that you're adding the that they're adding the twenty one percent to the sixty two percent. That's why I quoted the whole saying, paragraph because I was the, not going down that rabbit hole of how they got to eighty three percent. I was like, no, I'm just going to quote what they said, and people can make their own mind up on how that works. Yeah, yeah, but but just setting that aside, sixty two missing sixty two percent of the ads that were political by itself is bad. Yeah. Missing twenty one percent. Or misidentifying twenty one uh, forty thousand non political ads as political, that's that sounds like worse than throwing a dart. It doesn't right? say much if for you had the a algorithm. Black and a white square, and you just throw a dart. You would do better than sixty two percent. Yeah, fifty fifty. Probably right? do fifty fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this research does not paint the algorithm in a good light. Unfortunately, I wonder whether any change will come as a result. We shall see.
Again, the fact that Facebook have the APIs for researchers to do this kind of work is important. And it was actually quite hard fought for researchers to get access to, for researchers to be able to process those 33.8 million ads is progress. So So that brings up an interesting question is how did they go through 33.8 million ads and find 189,000 that they had identified yeah, I, I don't. The answer is I didn't read the entire paper. So it's an academic journal paper. I I guess it's all in there in yeah. tedious detail, but I didn't. Oh, actually, I, did, I, I am going to take back what I said, that it was invalid math to add the two together, because the 21%, the 40,000 non-political ads as political are a subset of the 189,000. Never mind. So they had to have used an algorithm. They did, humans did not read 33.8 million Facebook ads and decide what was political and not political. There, there so must, must have been have used- a combination. It must have been a combination of algorithm plus human. It must have been a case of use use some simple algorithms to narrow that down to a manageable amount and then use humans to pare it down the last bit of the way. Yeah, like if, if they could eliminate all the ones that were just talking about puppies. Uh, yeah, and I imagine the author may help you make a human judgment. So if you find a whole bunch of ads from the same author and they are political, then that would immediately throw those into the bucket for closer examination, I would guess. I'm just guessing here, you know, but... Yeah. They they definitely applied human as well as machine intelligence, but you're right. Unless they had a lot of humans, some sort of (laughs) mechanical Turk, could you chunk through 33.8 million with a mechanical Turk? Anyway, it's uh, it's an interesting question. It's uh, definitely interesting research. Um, And finally, definitely in the good news column, Twitter has expanded its safety policy. It has banned the posting of images of people without their consent. So you can now say to Twitter, Oi, that's a picture of me. It was posted without my consent. And Twitter will take it down. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to work in in a general sense. You know, there was a lot of uh, kerfuffle when this came out about, does that mean memes are dead? There was a lot of kerfuffle. The TechCrunch article basically goes into it. Twitter responded to the kerfuffle going, nope, 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 nope. I don't understand what nope means. So, silly, basically, reason this is a terrible idea, number one, not true. Reason this is a terrible idea, number two, not true. Basically, every argument thrown at them, Facebook responded with, no, 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 just to clarify, it's not. Twitter. Yeah. You said Facebook. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) it's an interesting slip. Um... Uh, from my reading of the TechCrunch article, they've answered the criticisms point for point. Okay. So, okay. so the, the internet will continue to work. <laughs> that is my understanding, yes. <laughs> okay. If it proves wrong, I guess we'll dig in deeper, but anyway. Um, no deep dives this time, so we can jump on to action alerts. Um, Firefox 95 is out, and it includes a whole bunch of security updates, as it always does. And normally I don't mention every Firefox update. Uh, you should patch Firefox when it offers you security updates because it's a web browser, so it's literally on the internet, obviously. Um, but in this case, I am going to mention it because as well as all the security updates, they have also started to migrate their code base to a whole new type of sandbox to provide even better isolation between websites. So it's going to make Firefox mm-hmm. an even more secure browser in the future. The Naked Security Post has the nerdy detail. Oh boy, nerdy. Deep, 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 deep. <laughs> but I uh, cool. Oh, go ahead. It's it's basically it's a nice technology, and one of the ni- one of the advances of this particular approach is that you can you can you can migrate your code step by step instead of as a big bang. So they've started by migrating um, a bunch of font font handling font handling code because fonts are a nasty way of getting stuff to go wrong, and the OG codec. I'm assuming because almost no one uses OGS, if they mess it up, it won't break the internet. I presume that was the logic. Just starting there yeah. and work their way into the other ones. And then they can, exactly. So this is about how shared libraries behave inside isolated tabs. Because at the moment, tab isolation breaks down the moment you load a DLL, because the DLL is shared library, dynamic linked library. You know, it's about sharing. So they've actually found a secure way to do shared code. I thought DLLs were uh, Windows specific. Yeah. Okay. I was trying to not get too into the weeds. So, and and the Windows, it's a DLL. On the Mac, it's a Dilib, and on Linux, it's a .so file. Sure. Okay. So, glad I dynamic that. link library uh, Dilib is dynamic library, and SO is shared object. Okay. But they're the same thing. Do you use Firefox on a regular basis? 
Yes, because I am a firm believer in having different browsers for different hats, so I can command tab mm. between my hats. So, so w- which hat goes in on uh, Firefox? Uh, Firefox is my work. Uh, I, I, there's a certain student system I look after that I need to be logged in as admin. Uh, so I have Firefox for that role, and I keep Safari as my other account, so I can see both the admin view and the regular human view at the same time. Okay, I go in and out of Firefox when when Safari is caching things weird when I'm coding, and I know you say it doesn't, but it does. Uh, it, I'll be trying something that either I know should work or I know shouldn't work, one or the other, and it's and it's not doing what's expected. And then I open it up in Firefox, and nine times out of ten, it's not working because it shouldn't be working, and I have to go get rid of Safari and start over. And I keep wanting to use Firefox as my main browser, but there's just so many advantages to having the, the same browser across iOS and Mac. Yeah. That I keep coming back to it. Uh, if you install Firefox and iOS, you can you can regain some of those advantages by having it sync your tabs and stuff. Yeah, I don't use the syncing of tabs really. It's just I everything don't just s- feels the same across it. Yeah, I don't sync my tabs actually. What I do is I I like the fact that I can access my tabs, so I can sort of pick up where I left off. So I don't want them in sync. I just want them accessible. So I'll often go yeah. to my phone and ask Safari to, oh, show me all the tabs I have it open on my Mac. Okay, that one. Yeah, yeah. And you can do that with Firefox now as well. But it's not as polished because it's trying to be cross-platform, whereas Apple is, you know, there are advantages to that top-down integration, top-to-bottom, soup-to-nuts. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh However, Mac users have one other reason to give Firefox a try. They have given Firefox 95 also introduces a whole bunch of new performance improvements for the Mac on Firefox. Oh, cool. So, I mean, Safari is so efficient with your battery and CPU and stuff on the Mac. There's that. (laughs) It is very, very pleasing. Um, The inverse of Safari is Chrome and Firefox was somewhere in the middle. So I will be curious over the next couple of weeks to watch Firefox on my work Mac and see how it does. I am. But a yeah, year the nice ago, thing is you can have all the advantages of Chrome without installing Chrome by installing Edge. That is, I, 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 when I'm working, I always have Safari, Firefox, and Chrome open. And Chrome was one I sort of reluctantly installed at first. Sorry, not Chrome, Edge. Edge, I don't have mm-hmm. Chrome open ever. And no, that's not true. I open Chrome once in a blue moon when someone who doesn't, from another organization, makes me use Google Meet because Google Meet is far too buggy on everything that isn't Google Chrome. Really? Not It doesn't even run well on um, on Edge? I thought everything worked on Edge. Not sure I've tried because I'm not logged into my Google account there. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Whenever Google acts up, I just run home to Google's own browser. <laughs> <laughs> must work here they wrote this uh, but Edge is gorgeous I just find myself loving Edge like I, I, I installed it because I, I need a third one and I hate Chrome but Edge is really nice it's fast it's That's really fast. nippy yeah it's yeah it's nice no I, I, I genuinely like uh, Edge it's you're such a Microsoft I lover Bart Jeez, I didn't mean to it just happened it's not your fault. They improved. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, I like to say I have my opinions based on fact, not my facts based on opinion. So, mm-hmm. you know, people say, oh, you just say that because you like Mac. It's like, no, I like Mac because I have valued these things. And mm-hmm. anyway, uh, in other news, I have this in action alerts, but I'm not sure it should be here versus in major news. But either way, there are going to be a lot of software updates for a whole bunch of apps and things that use the Internet. Because a really popular library that's used all over the place is NSS, which is a crypto library that is open source, which it's just called NSS now. But give you an idea of how old it is and where it came from. It's the Netscape security suite. Oh, wow. But it's just NSS now. But that's what it was originally, Netscape security suite. And there was a zero day found in NSS that has been promptly patched by Mozilla. But of course, if you patch a library that other people have embedded in their apps, well, then the other people have to update their apps to get the new library and embed it. So there are going oh, to be wow. app updates for people who use NSS. Um, so, so just patchy, patchy, you won't patchy, know patchy. when that's necessarily happening, but... Yeah, just expect lots of software updates and just do them. <laughs> patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Yeah. 
Moving on then to worthy warnings. Um, I tweeted about this first story basically saying, this is why I like AirTags. Um, Tile were recently bought by a large company. And it uh, turns out that the reason the large company wanted Tile was so that they could sell the location data. So yay, Life360 uh, is the new parent company who I'd never heard of. Because they're Aren't not... they're a family safety company. Huh. <laughs> That's... That's perverse in so many ways. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we'll charge you for for protecting your family and we'll sell all of your data as a second income stream. Ugh, hate. Blech. It's up there with ISP selling your browsing data. Just, no, I trusted you. I pay you. Don't, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this is not a good news story. Uh, there, it is true that 400,000 patient records, uh, oh, there's an eye missing in the show notes, they're not patent records, they're patient records, uh, okay. have been leaked by Planned Parenthood, which is not good, but it is a more contained leak than a lot of the reporting would have you believe. The headlines fail to mention that it was one branch of Planned Parenthood as opposed to all of Planned Parenthood, the LA branch, which is quite a large branch if they have 400,000 records. Um, and while it is not the kind of information you want out there in the world, it could be worse. It's your name and one or more of your address, your insurance details, your date of birth and clinical information such as diagnoses, procedures and or prescriptions. Jeez. Well, when we live in a world where vigilantes are licensed to hunt you down for using Planned Parenthood, having your home address... And your diagnostics, that, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, so a Texas resident who traveled to LA, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not, a, it's, like I say, it's not a good news story. It's just not as, a lot of the reporting failed to mention the caveats. And I just think it's important to, to say that, look, it's not all of Planned Parenthood. It is just just the LA branch, but it is still 400,000 records. That's a, that's a lot. Ugh. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, the Nocilla Castaways uh, shared a lovely story from those charming people in Verizon. So I think it was uh, Nor- Norbert sent this one over. Well, thank you, Norbert. Um, so Verizon had this thing that would allow you to would allow them to share your browsing data. I presume in exchange for cheaper bills. I hope to goodness it was in exchange for something. And they rebranded it to a new name and decided that all of the old opt-outs don't count anymore because we've changed the name, so it's not the same thing anymore. So you opt out of something else. Don't you know? Great. Yeah, that's just ick, ick, ick. I now understand why people want to have a VPN that's on all the time. I, I used to think that it was, wasn't was needed because you could trust your ISP because you're a paying customer. I was naive. I was very naive. So anyway, moving on to notable news. Um, th- This is the kind of, like, there are a lot of... This is a big security problem, but us, the Silla Castaways, are powerless to do anything about it. So literally, the best we can do is buy a sysadmin a coffee. However, I think we should talk about it because this really is huge news. So it it is a bug that has been given a shiny name. It's called Log4Shell. Uh, it uses a very common, a very, very common logging library called Log4J, which is a Java library. It's used all throughout the enterprise for really big stuff, really big infrastructure. And due to a zero-day bug that was tweeted before the company were told about it, or sorry, before the Apache Foundation were told about it, because it's open source. So there was no responsible disclosure. The first the world learned about this was a tweet advertising exploit code to the world. Ugh. So lovely. Not even making money off it. Not even making money off it. So if you send, if you can trick a Log4j server into writing some text that you control. Now, logging is all about recording things. So you can do that kind of thing by sticking question mark and the text you want on the end of a URL and visiting a website, right? When the website goes to log your visit, that bit you stuck on the end of the URL is in the log file, right? It's very easy to make something okay. log something. You right. can basically trick a Log4j server into making an LDAP query to any LDAP server anywhere on planet Earth and what it will do with the answer it is given is execute it. Hang on, an LDAP server is a lookup table of like user accounts, isn't it? In normal user use. User identification. Yeah, in normal use when not being abused, 
LDAP, it's the lightweight directory access protocol. So you can look up anything about anything, right? You could you could use LDAP okay. to store anything, but in reality, it's usually used to store account information. So the okay. normal use for this would be to convert like a user ID into a human readable name. So the reason a log server might want to do that was to make more informal of logging. Uh, but it's not supposed to just connect to any LDAP server anywhere on planet Earth. That's not a good default behavior. So yeah. that is no longer the default behavior on the updated version. But on the unupdated version, you can just go to a website, throw a question mark on the end of the URL, and make that website contact an LDAP server you control with a query you have written. And then it will assume the answer it gets back is a .class file, and it oh. will execute it in the Java Virtual Machine. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That is remote code execution at its most bad. So thankfully, the industry is scrambling and it's quite easy to fix because if you update your uh, Java stack to the latest version, the default behavior is not to query just any old server. So (laughs) if you actually have an up-to-date version of Java, you don't have a problem. There is a very simple global config variable that says do not allow the logging to query out. So that nips it in the bud straight away too. So there's plenty of ways to defend yourself. And for a few hours, some really big names were affected. Say iCloud was affected by this. Um, There was some initial reporting that Cloudflare were, Cloudflare deny they were, and Cloudflare insist they are absolutely not affected. So I'm going to believe Cloudflare, to be honest, they've earned my trust over the years. But this definitely, this is a big story. This is a big deal. Um, so well, let me just, you know, spitball here, just uh, pull an example out of just nowhere. Um, <laughs> the health services from Ireland that doesn't have a CISO, would they know to do this? No, <laughs> that, that, that is exactly the problem, right? You have people so who... So easy to do as long as you're paying attention and have staffed appropriately to do. Yeah. And do you have someone in your organization or some sort of data structure in your organization that records what software you're running? Like, would there be someone who could answer the question, do we use Log4j? Right? That is the question managers yeah. are asking all of their sysadmins. Do we use this? And that's not an easy answer. That's not an easy question to answer unless you have a lot of processes and procedures in place. If you don't have some sort of config management database that records how all of your stuff hangs together, you don't really know what's in your supply chain. You don't know what's under the hood. It's good though you said if you just install the latest version of Java the problem goes away. Yeah. So you don't need to, you don't actually need to know if you're using log4j. True. If you have a good patch management system and you can basically <laughs> attest to the fact that no no our javas are fully patched then you can also tell your CISO we're good. Yeah, and that of course goes back to whether or not you've Having got some <laughs> proprietary software you've written that you're afraid to update Java mm. because you're afraid it'll break it and there's no time to test it and it's on a critical piece of infrastructure so you're not allowed to. Yes, not that, that I is, ever heard of that happening where I used to work. That is ever. extremely common and the kind of place that happens is on enterprise systems. And one of the most common <laughs> stacks to hold up those enterprise systems is Java. Java is the enterprise's pet language. Yeah. And Log4j is, without a shadow of a doubt, the leader in the logging space for Java. If you have a Java app and you want to do effective logging, you are probably using Log4j. Wow. So, yeah. Big mm. story. So, like, I, I don't think we could have not talked about it, but it's not one we can do anything about other than buy your favorite sysadmin a coffee. So do that. <laughs> exactly. The Financial Times have a very shouty report about how Apple have loosened their anti-tracking policies. I've read as much of it as I can. It's behind a paywall, so I'm reading excerpts from it from other places. But as best as I can tell, the complaint is that Apple are not stopping people using aggregated anonymized data because their actual policy is against tracking identifiable people. And like the wording from Apple is identifiable individual. And what they're claiming yeah. is being allowed is aggregated anonymized data. And I'm just trying to figure out where is the there there? And maybe I've missed something because it's behind a paywall and I can't see it all. So I'm open to correction here. But if there's a there there, it is news to me. Okay. 
So we shouldn't worry too much. I'm certainly not panicked yet. Now, the great thing about having the Nocilla Castaways is there probably is someone who has access to behind <laughs> the paywall. So if I'm wrong on this, I want to be corrected. I always want to be corrected if I'm wrong, and that goes double for something I can't read because it's behind a paywall. So, okay, let me know. Finally, uh, I get to end on a good news story that starts with the UK government, which is rare. The UK government have published the first draft of a bill they would like to turn into a law called the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill, or PSTI, and they want to set a security floor for IoT devices. So Hmm. the three headlines of this new law would be no default usernames and passwords. That is not to be permitted. Great. What an idea. Yeah. A duty to notify when vulnerabilities are found and a requirement that you state up front clearly how long the product will get security updates. Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. But isn't that a wonderful... Like, if you wanted three things to have as a baseline, that every IoT device sold in the UK has to at least do these three things, I can't think of anything better than those three things. You gotta promise me to keep it. You gotta promise to tell me when it's broken. You can't have default usernames and passwords, and you are going to commit to how long I'm going to be able to get security updates so I can plan ahead and replace the product in time. I'm afraid that's incredibly difficult to um, police. So I'm I'm uh, from some country, not not the UK, and mm. I'm making some cheap little IoT devices. I can put on there that I'm going to do security updates for a decade. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it. It doesn't mean I committed to do it. It means I typed it on the packaging. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not saying, ta-da, problem solved, IoT is now secure. But if you're going to put something in legislation and you're going to try a sensible starting point that isn't, you know, GDPR style, the kitchen sink and everything. But if you're going to pick three things, they're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know that they're going to cause any change. I, okay, I would be very confident they will cause a non-zero amount of change. Whether they cause anywhere near enough, I am not confident about. But it is definitely going to push the industry, right? So I mean, it might be that some companies just won't bother to sell in the UK if they can't without doing yeah, those things. Which is also and then, fine. And that's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a filter. Great. I like that filter. Enable. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> you know, now this is the, 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 the potential fly hovering approximately near our ointment here is that this is a draft proposal. And this is before the industry have had a chance to tell the government of what they dislike about this draft proposal. <laughs> okay. So, understood. You know, like I say, proposed law, but good starting point. Let us see where it goes. Uh, no top tips, no excellent explainers, but I do have a post that I'm going to throw under interesting insights. Um, There are a million and one cryptocurrency companies that start and then fail. But Naked Security tell the story wonderfully of how a very simple logic bug in some programming can cost you $31 million. Because you really should (laughs) debit before you credit. Not credit before you debit if you're doing a transfer. Okay. It was possible uh, to sequence... Why would that be any different? Well, what if there? What if you don't do those two transactions atomically? What if there's a possibility for something to sneak in between the debit and the credit? If you debit the account and then credit it, that order makes a really big difference to crediting and then debiting. Huh. The other thing is you should not allow a transfer to yourself. So... They allowed that their code didn't detect that these to and the from address of the transfer were the same account, and mm-hmm. they credited before they debited. So if you set up the right race condition, you can multiply your balance by transferring <laughs> yourself money you don't have. Uh, but doesn't it eventually get debited? No, because one very because you don't have the money to give it back. It's worse than that. The assumption is that the variable to account and from account will be different. So at one point in the code, the to address gets overwritten and the debit never happens. Uh, the credit okay. happens, but the debit doesn't. So that so, is inflating. So people stole money that way? Yes, 31 million worth. How did they this cryptocurrency survive that? I'm not sure they did. 
Okay. Right? The amount of crypto startups that fall over in a heap is quite large. So I okay. think this is a this is a, ta- a tale of tragedy, but basically naked security tell a great story. And if you're doing programming by stealth or anything like that and you're interested in the difference between a syntax error and a logic error, this is a wonderful example of how you can write code that is will compile and run flawlessly. But it can be very, very wrong. Very simply, very wrong. It's, it's a good story. I, I think a lot of our listeners will get something out of it. It's detailed, down in the weeds, but I liked it. So I figured that that's where we could throw it into the notes. And I shall cleanse your palate. So I have two podcast recommendations if people still have. Actually, I've noticed my podcast feed is very empty because a lot of my podcasts seem to be going on hiatus in preparation for Christmas. So I've actually been catching up on a lot of um, ones I dip in and out of normally. So last time I talked about Business Wars having a fantastic mini-series on the Crypto Wars. Well, straight after that, the next mini-series they did, which is now completed, is BlackBerry versus iPhone. It's really well told. Now, I know to a lot of the Nasilla castaways, we know the big picture of the story. But to actually have a detailed narrative telling of what was going on in BlackBerry and what was going on in Apple and how those two were playing off each other. It was a good story well told. So I recommend that one. And then I've sort of been looking for an excuse to recommend a wonderful BBC podcast called The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. It's it's a really fun podcast, uh, very sciencey, very factual, but very fun. Uh, But they have started a mini-series that's going to run until Christmas about how AI interacts with our real-world lived experience. And they're picking a different topic for each show. And they've kicked off the series with AI in Warfare. This is not a happy smiley episode, but very thought-provoking and very well presented. It's it, it basically it's neither happy joy joy nor set your hair on fire. It is a thoughtful, informative, very good description of the questions that we are asking ourselves. Is it okay to let algorithms decide to kill people? It's a pretty big question. <laughs> and, and this is this is not a doom and gloom uh, article. Huh? It is not. No, honestly, it is not. It is basically a thoughtful. You know, it is a question we as a society are rapidly running towards. We're going to have to deal with this as a society. And so it is looking at the question and the pros and the cons and the what is possible and what isn't possible. So it's neither set your hair on fire nor don't worry your pretty head about it, it'll be grand. It is it, it is insightful, not terrifying nor mollifying. Okay. Well, hey, can I add one more to Ooh, the sure. palate cleansers here? So um, I've been dipping in and out of the Code Newbie podcast, um, and I'm not quite sure why I dip out, because I almost always learn something and find something valuable in it. Um, And this isn't just for people, this particular episode, I wouldn't say is just an episode that you would want to listen to if you're a programmer. It's a woman named Ayesha Brown. She's a military uh, veteran, and she's a program manager at Microsoft. She is one of the most compelling humans I have ever listened to. She talks about how um, everything is code, basically. She talks. She starts at the very beginning of the way you look at life and everything is, is really code. And she talks about how when she was a kid, she reprogrammed the uh, bells at, the, at the, her local high school so that she'd get out of class early, things like that. <laughs> nice. But then she, she joined the military when she was 17. And uh, when she got out, she, she figured out how to get herself an interview at uh, Microsoft and determined that she was going to get that job. And, and she describes how she did it. And it, she's just, she is a force to be reckoned with. And now what she does is she works with veterans to help them transition from the military into tech and how to document what they know and how to get teach them how to speak in the language of a non-military veteran so that the people you're talking to can understand you. You know, don't don't use the words and the lingo and the that we know and and who to get advice from and how to get mentors. And I loved 100% of listening to her. She was just fantastic. So it's season 18, episode five of the Code Newbie podcast with Ayesha Brown. I will add that to my, since I, since I was just complaining about my, my playlist being a bit bare, there we go. It's just added some content for me for this evening. That's, uh, it's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Excellent. I, 
I was going to say, I know the code newbies is in my app, but I know why. It's because someone there interviewed some Alison Sheridan woman once. <laughs> Which I think was one of the least interesting, to, to be honest. I, I, I realized, it. well, I, 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 for a very specific reason, uh, when I'm on a show, I tend to go in from the I'm selling me you know, why I'm fascinating and that's why I'm I'm worthy of being on this show. But this show is really about talking in a way that, that, that can help somebody else see a path for themselves. And I didn't really approach it that way. If I had it to do over again, I would say a lot of things differently. I would turn the way I was selling my information to the audience uh, in a different way. It, was, it shouldn't have been all about me. It should have been all about, about the audience member and how they could do the kinds of things that I'm able to do. That's kind of what I mean. Gotcha. It's not the worst interview. It just, I don't think it was the best interview for the intent of this show. Yeah. And the intent of the show is to help you figure out on your path to be a, a programmer, how you can, how you can do that. But this, this interview with IASIA was, is valid. It, I mean, if you're in the military uh, and, and looking for how you're going to sell yourself when you get out, she is fantastic. Super. Well, it's literally, it is now the third item in my playlist for this evening. Excellent. Excellent. Well, well, I think that uh, wraps us up, doesn't it? Yeah, well, certainly all I got in the show notes. So uh, <laughs> unless you have some more pearls of wisdom to drop on us, I do believe it is time for the old uh, reminder, folks. Stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up this week. Uh, did you know you can email me at allison at podfeed.com anytime you like? Like this week when you think, I have a great idea for a recording for the show and I'm going to do my part to help keep the NoSilicast alive and not taking a break after 16 and a half years, I'm going to do a recording and then I'm going to email it to allison at podfeed.com. You can also send in questions or suggestions to allison at podfeed.com. I'm not on Facebook anymore, so Twitter's a great place to follow me online at Podfeet. And better yet, you should really join our Slack community. We've got tons of new people coming in. We've got a bunch of stalwarts who are always in there making great comments. It's a lot of fun over at podfeet.com slash Slack. So you get to talk not just to me, but the other lovely new Silla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation podfeet.com slash paypal and if you want to join in the fun of the live show head on over to podfeet.com slash live on sunday nights at 5 p.m pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic nocella castaways thanks for listening and stay subscribed